Amen. All right, guys, you can take a seat. We're, we're in our series in the book of Genesis called New Beginnings. And the picture I want you to have is all of us together here and those who are on our live stream together, we are spiritual pilgrims. And we are searching for the lost land of Eden, and it's something that's impossible to find. And because we long for Eden and we can't find it, we are frustrated and we are furious, and it is infuriating to try to look for something that you can't seem to find. It's like we have a lost wallet. And in that wallet is our passport back home to Eden, and we cannot find our wallet. But even if we did find it, even if we did have that passport, we still have a problem. We still can't find our homeland. We still can't find our Eden that has been lost to us so long ago. Here's what our series is about. Here's what the book of Genesis is about. The book of Genesis is your map, your compass and your passport back home. Did you hear that? The book of Genesis, your map, your compass, and your passport back home. So in this series, here's what we're doing. We're opening up the Bible like we're opening up a map, and we're seeing these characters in this book of Genesis, and we're watching them walk through the map to get back home. And what happens is this story of Genesis, we're swept up into it, and as we're swept up into this story of God rescuing his people, we see here that we're just like these characters who are longing to get back to Eden. We're opening up the map, and we see these characters, we join them, and we make together our way back home as spiritual pilgrims back to our homeland, Eden. That's what this book is all about. Puts us back on a road. And in this map that's taken us on this road, we meet a friend. There's something about him. And over time, we realize that it's actually God who's come to walk with us home. He's come for us because we didn't know the way. So today, we're going to look at this road, but here's what happens along the road. There are temptations and lies that try to get us to look for Eden while we are here, though Eden is not here. We try to make Eden here. We try to make the things of this world part of Eden, though they are not. And we go to them to give us what only Eden can. And what it is is lies that we are falling for over and over and over again. And so these temptations, look at this. These temptations are like a glass of water that you drink down. Only what you find is in that last gulp, you are thirstier than when you started drinking at first because you're going to the wrong thing to quench you. So every temptation in this world whispers the lie. Take me, and I'll give you Eden. And we fall for it over and over and over again. So today, we're going to look at two temptations and w- that have been twisted. Two things that are good that have been twisted into temptations, and one thing that we are really confused about. So here they are. Here's the three things. These are our three points. Sex, power, and suffering. You guys, all your heads popped up when I said the first one. Sex, power, and suffering. So... Some quick background. Joseph, he is the character on the map that we are looking at here. 
And as we're watching him along this map, what we see is that he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and it seems like this horrible thing has just happened to him. Only what we find out is that every time someone does an evil to Joseph, God uses it for good. In fact, that could be the story of Joseph's life, that God takes whatever evil is done to him and he works it out so that it works out for good. And this is the theme as we walk through the rest of Genesis. So here's our, here's our story. Genesis 39, and we're going to read the whole entire chapter of Genesis 39. So we got a bit to read, but stay focused because this is God's word. It's important, okay? All right, here we go. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called out to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him. And put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and did Whatever he did, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. All right, so our three points. First, 
sex. So Freud, the so-called sex expert, says spiritual longings, this is fascinating, that he says the spiritual longings are just simply sexual, frustrated sexual desires. The Bible's saying the exact opposite. So he says the reason that you're searching for God is because you're frustrated sexually. And what the Bible is saying is that the reason that you're, you have these frustrated sexual desires is actually just because you have a spiritual longing that has yet to be met. G.K. Chesterton says it perfectly. He says, the man that knocks on the door of a brothel is simply searching for God. So, you aren't Eden. You're not there. And because of it, you try to find the things of Eden through Sex. So you long for Eden. You want Eden. You want the ecstasy of Eden, the intimacy of Eden, the embrace of Eden, the pleasures of Eden, this desire to feel loved and accepted and cherished and to give that to others. You long for that, and that's what's in Eden. But you aren't in Eden now. And because of that, people will often try to use sex to get what they really long for that's in Eden. But the problem with that is as soon as we start doing that, as soon as we chase after Eden through sex, we lose Eden. In other words, sex is meant to be a glimmer of Eden, but you only get those glimmers of Eden when you use sex the way that it was meant to be used. A lot of times... People will think the Bible has this low view of sex, but actually it has a tremendously high view of sex. It's meant to be, it's meant, in the Bible, it's not a casual thing at all. But one of the most vulnerable things that you can do with someone, and is meant to be experienced with someone that has promised their life to you and no one else. It's not something that you try out first to see if you're willing to make the promise but you make the promise first and then enjoy it the way it was meant to be enjoyed. So you say to the person, this new person, this person now that you have promised yourself to forever, you say, there's plenty of fish in the sea, but I've taken my line out of the water and I'm yours and yours alone. But Freud is saying, hey, let's say you go out in the boat in the middle of the night with your, your spouse and you look up into the sky, and you see the moon, and you see the stars, and you think of God. What Freud is saying is that as soon as you think of God, here's what's going on. You have a, you have a frustrated sexual desire. And so you need to go and experiment. You need to figure out a way to quench these sexual desires, but stop trying it with spiritual things. So this, it sounds strange to us, but this is actually hinted to us in our culture whispering these, these lies that, hey, if you're not happy, just go experiment in your marriage. Just try some things out. And then what ends up happening is people are left with a broken heart, distrust, shame, hurt. And then what happens is you say, well, I, I've got to keep going with this because if Freud is right, so it leaves a greater trail of destruction behind you. And that's exactly what Potiphar's wife seems to be doing. So Joseph isn't, by the way, Joseph isn't killed for doing what he's doing. It, it, Potiphar could have done that, but he doesn't. And here's what I think the reason is. Because 
Potiphar's wife has a history of this kind of thing. He knows her to be this kind of woman, so this has probably happened before, and we're meant to contrast Joseph with Potiphar's wife. In fact, we're also meant to contrast Joseph with Judah, who we saw last week. So, Joseph does see that doing this deed would be a sin against who? He primarily says it's not a sin against Potiphar, but it's a sin against God. Now, that's weird. David says the same thing. King David goes and he gets with Bathsheba, who's married to another man. And after this happens, he sends Bathsheba's husband into war so that he'll die. And he just does this horrible thing. And then then he's convicted of his sin. And you know what he says? He says, God against you and you alone have I sinned. So what's up with that? That both Joseph and David see this, their sin, as being something that's primarily against God, mainly. And here's what it comes down to. David and Joseph see God as their creator. And because he's their creator, he has designed them a certain way to have these desires, but have those desires meant to be satisfied through the way that God would have those desires be satisfied. So there's a way, a good way, to engage in these desires. There's a good, healthy way within marriage, or there's an unhealthy way. The Bible has a beautiful view of sex in the way it's meant to be done. So the other question is, how did Joseph get the strength to run away? Because this was a daily thing. And so you think about it. If the Bible is saying that your sexual frustrations are longings for Eden, the God of Eden, then that must mean that your strategy to flee from temptation is to, is to understand that underneath it all, you have a tremendous spiritual longing that is not being satisfied. So the Bible talks about delighting yourself in God, and by doing that, he's going to give you all the desires of your heart. So here's what that means you need to do, and this is going to sound strange, but to flee from temptation, in that moment, you set your heart upon God, and you understand that the desires that you feel, those that are unhealthy, God can satisfy your desires. Now, I know that sounds weird, but let me just prove this to you. So St. Augustine says, we are made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So if you have a desire that you need to flee from, go right to God and don't just ask him for the strength for you to flee, but you have to actually search your heart and say, what am I actually looking for here? What am I seeking right now? Am I seeking beauty? God is more beautiful. Am I seeking intimacy? God knows me far more than anybody else and he loves me still. We need God. He, first and foremost, over all things. And you long to be loved. You long to be cherished. And you long to show this love to another and to show another how, that your love for them. And some of you, you're not using sex or you haven't in the past used it the way that it's meant to be used. And you're giving yourself away. Because what you're really chasing after is love and acceptance. God offers you more love and acceptance and pleasure than sex can. 
And then there's another aspect of this. Sometimes you don't have time to search your heart. So what do you do? You got to run. You just run right away, just like what Joseph is doing. Because Joseph probably knew his weakness, and so he just ran. Some of us need to stop putting ourselves in situations where there is so much temptation and put safeguards in our life so we are constantly running from these temptations that are constantly coming at us. But the bottom line is that sex is a beautiful thing that's meant to be experienced within marriage and having a fully committed person with you in this. And if you're having trouble with that, go to God, and he will satisfy your desires. And see, see part of the problem, part of the, why this sounds so weird when we say uh, we have a, a sexual appetite, so what do we do? We go to God. That sounds weird because we've made an idol of sex in our culture. And, we, and, and, and marketers will use this very well. They'll, they'll put women over billboards in order to get men to buy something and in order to get women to buy something because women say, oh, I want to look like that. I want to be desired like that. That's my longing. And so I'm going to dress like this in order to get the things that I want deep down inside. And look, also, I just, I, before I move on from this, I've got to say this. You might be thinking, well, well, can't this just be in a committed relationship? Why does it have to be in marriage? So let me just ask this question. Are you committed enough to getting married right now? And if not, then there's your answer. And if you say, well, okay, I, I'm going to do this in the future. I'm going to get married in the future. Well, why won't you do it right now? You haven't let your commitment go all the way to its fullest, where you have promised before God and all the world that you, are one, you belong to one person and they belong to you. You can't test drive people like you test drive a car. People aren't objects. They aren't materials. These are people made in the image of God who long to be known and loved and cherished in the way they're meant to be. Okay, moving on from the uncomfortableness that some of you might have felt. And this is our second point, power. All right, so both Joseph and Potiphar's wife are extremely powerful people. And by the way, again, with Judah. So Judah, last week we saw, Judah had this tremendous power over his daughter-in-law, and he used that power for his own selfish gain. And we see that Potiphar, so Potiphar's wife is the, the woman we're looking at. Potiphar, he's the general of the army. This is an extremely powerful position that he would have been in. And his wife would have had that power. But look at what it says about Joseph. Joseph had all the power that Potiphar had because Potiphar trusted him so much with all of his stuff, everything. And in fact, through these events, through him going to prison, Joseph ends up arriving at, later on in the story, to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And they use their power in very different ways. Here's what it's coming down to. Here's the big question. How will you use your power? So Joseph uses his power to build God's kingdom. Joseph uses his power selflessly, but Potiphar's wife uses her power to build her own empire, to build her own kingdom, to get what she wants, not what God wants. 
So the same way that sex is a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, as long as it's used the way it's meant to be used, the same thing is true with power. You have to use it the way it's meant to be used. So I used to say that power tends to corrupt people. But I don't think that's true anymore. I think I was wrong. I think actually power just reveals what was already inside someone. And I used to say that the church is best, I actually said it this week, that the church is best when it doesn't have power. And there's some legitimacy to that because when, the, when we have no power at all, the church, we become more reliant on God and that makes us all the more powerful. But at the same time, I think power actually reveals what's already there. So every single one of you, to some degree, have power because you have influence in your family, your friends, your workplaces. You have money. Money creates power because you use it to accomplish things. You have influence over people. You have possessions and you have opportunity. These are all things of power. You have power in your family, your neighborhood, your workplace. And your money, to some degree is powerful because you use it to accomplish something. But it all depends on how you use it. You will always use your power in the wrong way if, you are, if your eyes are not set upon Eden. Because if you don't set your eyes upon the Eden, God's Eden, the kingdom to come, then what you do is you set your eyes upon this earth and you seek to build your own empire of Eden here and now. So every bit of power that you have, you begin to start using for you. And we do it way more than we realize. You will always use your power to build your empire selfishly if you are not building God's kingdom. One of the greatest temptations in your life will always be how you use your power. Will you use it for God's kingdom or for your own kingdom? And if I'm honest with you, and I need to be honest with you, most Christians, most churchgoers use their power to build their own kingdom. And you, can, and you can tell this, when you meet someone that isn't concerned about their kingdom but God's kingdom, there's something about them that you are attracted to because they're not using you. They don't need something from you. They're not trying to build your kingdom. They're trying to build God's kingdom. And so you, they need nothing from you. They only have to offer something. God's kingdom. They see their life as a faithful presence where they are there wherever it might be to bring God's kingdom to whosoever life they are in. They are not friends with you because it's useful for them. They are simply friends with you because God has brought you into their life and they want to serve you and bring God's kingdom into your life. Now, we talked about fleeing from temptation. Does this also mean we should flee from power? No, power is a good thing. It just depends on why you want it and what you use it for. You should flee from building your own kingdom, and you should run towards building God's kingdom. Don't flee from sex unless you're going to use it the wrong way. The same thing as power. Don't flee from power unless you're going to use it the wrong way. And if you're doing that, and if you stay faithful to God, and let him handle the rest, if you say, okay, I don't need to worry so much about myself, because I'm going to stay faithful to God and let him handle the rest. So then what happens is you aren't desperately seeking power. You're just seeking to be faithful in what God has given you. 
Now, there is a tremendous opportunity that you have to bring God's kingdom. And you're probably falling for the mistake to think that, oh, the pastor is the one who brings the kingdom of God. But actually, with the way the Bible describes it is the pastor's job is to equip you to bring the kingdom of God wherever you live, work, and play. I'm here to equip you to bring God's kingdom as you go out. That is a very different thing than most people think. And some of you have such an opportunity in your life to bring God's kingdom. And here's what you do. You, here's all you have to do. Ask one simple and terrifying question. God, what must I do to build your kingdom right now? Not mine, but yours. What does it look like, God, for, for my life to build your kingdom? Here's some, um, here's some more questions. Who are you living for? This is going to help you understand. What do you have your stuff for? Who's it for? Who are you working for? Why do you want your kids to be so successful? So that they can have a really good life? Or so that they could bring God's kingdom? That's a hard one. I think more than we realize, we're teaching our kids to build their kingdom versus God's kingdom. And then in turn, what we're doing is we're teaching our kids to be selfish. With not, not, with not even realizing it. We have such good intentions for them. Come on, you can do this. Go take this career. Go, go to college. If you just go to college, then you're going to be able to have such a great life, and I want you to have a great life. But really, we should be teaching them to go to college to build God's kingdom on this earth. And it would be the best thing for them to do that. See, when you gain success like what Joseph did, he used it for God's kingdom, not his own. So, but we do stuff like this. We use it for ourselves, and we say, sure, generosity is good. I need to be generous. But it's not time yet. I've got to get some more money. I've got to take care of everything for myself. I've got to make sure that my family's all good. People say this all the time. If only I had just this much more money, I could do so much to bring God's kingdom. If you can't do it now, you're never going to do it when you have more money. It's going to be harder. Some of you have tons of influence, or you could have tons of influence, or the world says, hey, take your influence and get more. One day you could cash in and help do some great stuff, but first, get as much influence as you can before you do that. But God's kingdom is saying, no, start now with whatever influence you have. See, good intentions are always seem, seeming to be for the future. And there's always a reason to hold off building God's kingdom in the future because there's always going to be tomorrow that says, yeah, but, but what else? But you also need this. So the thinking goes like this. Okay, first, I'm going to get my feet on solid ground. And then I'm going to get a good house and a good car. And I'm going to create like a good life for my family. And then I'm going to save up for retirement. And then what you find out eventually is it was all for you. And you always had intentions for tomorrow being the day that you would build God's kingdom. And look, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. This is just God's word. It so desperately like, wants you to build his kingdom. Not, 
it's, it's for your sake, but it's not for your sake. Like it's for your good, but you're not doing it for your good. But by doing it not for your good, but for the good of God's kingdom, it brings good into your heart and out into your life. Joseph uses his success to bring God's kingdom immediately. And to become, now, now look at this. The, pro, the promise that God made to his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And that doesn't come to fruition. That doesn't come true until Joseph. When he rises to power, how? By some evil happening to him in his life, God uses it for good, and it sets him up to be a blessing to all the nations. That's what's coming in future chapters. Here's all you got to do. This is very simple. Do what God tells you to do and let him work out the rest. Don't fall for the temptation of building your own kingdom. It is seductive. And it will, it will every opportunity, lure you in. All right, and how you handle this next temptation, the third one, is probably going to be the hardest. So this is suffering, number three. So here's the temptation. When you do what God asks you to do, when you do the right thing, and in turn, because of doing the right thing, you experience suffering. So Joseph is doing the right thing. And because he did the right thing here, he's thrown in prison. So, I mean, and this keeps happening to him. So you can imagine the conversation that he has with God. Like, God, I did everything. I did everything that you asked me to do, that you told me to do. Why are you doing this to me? But Joseph never says that. At least we don't see that as evidence in the story. Joseph understands something, that he can trust God, and that even if he does the right thing and evil happens from it, there's an evil that comes after him from it, even though, even that happens, God will work it out for good. It's his intention, God's intention to even take evil things and work it out for the good of his kingdom coming in your life and in the life of people around you. So he does the right thing, he's thrown in prison, but eventually, because he's thrown in prison, he rises up to be second in power over all of Egypt. And some of you know the right thing that you have to do, but you're not doing it because you don't want to suffer. God says, do it anyways. God says, trust me. God had a bigger plan for Joseph, and the same is true for you. In Romans 8, we are told that even, that we're told that this, no suffering will be wasted. Whether it will work out a grand purpose either in this life or the next, but you know no matter what you can count on is that God will orchestrate it the same way in Joseph's life for somehow some good to come out of it. And some of you are mad at God right now and you are saying this is not fair at all. I did what I was supposed to do. How could you do this to me, God? And perhaps what God is trying to do is to get you to realize that when you have nothing or when you're in the midst of suffering, that he is enough, that you can actually go to him and he will give you some joy even in the midst of suffering. In fact, he might give you more joy in the midst of suffering. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So what, just ask this question, what do you want when you want suffering to stop? You want Eden. You want the pleasures of Eden. You want justice. You want life with God. Suffering is what's preparing us for God and for Eden. Not that we go out and run and chase suffering, but we just do what God has told us to do, and we trust him along the way. And the promise of the Bible is that somehow, some way, if you go to God, he will sustain you in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your suffering. Yes, he'll sustain you, but he'll also use those things to prepare you for Eden and actually make your future Eden that much better. I don't know how. It's the promise, though. And not only that, the Bible actually says... Rejoice in your suffering because you can promise, you can know for sure that through the suffering, God will refine you and you could take joy in it. Not that you're taking joy in the actual suffering, but you're taking joy in what the suffering is going to produce in you and through you. God has made a promise. Your suffering will not be wasted. And he's saying, okay, fine, you want Eden? Good. I'm going to bring Eden through you. And it's going to require your transformation. And for you to be transformed, there's a little bit of difficulties that you got to walk through. But you're going to walk through them so that you could learn to trust me over all things. And at the other side of it, what you're going to find is that you're bringing Eden, you're bringing the kingdom of God into this world more and more and more. When you look at people who are seeking to bring God's kingdom, you look at their past, and you can almost always see suffering. You could always see refining because it changed them into the person who really desired to see God's kingdom come. Do what God asks. Let him work out the rest. C.S. Lewis says, I don't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Some of you, well, not some of you, go to Christianity because it's true, okay? But don't go to it pursuing happiness. But by going to it, you will stumble upon happiness because watch what happens. So you go to Christianity because you find it to be true. The Spirit of God has worked in your heart, and now you're convinced it's true. So you run to it. And then immediately you're given a purpose and a meaning in life. And you will stand, and there will be difficulties before you, but the purpose you feel so strongly that you endure through the suffering, and you know what that's doing? You know what a purpose does? It gives you meaning in life. And then what happens by chasing meaning and taking responsibility is that actually what happens in the end is you find yourself happy. But not because you pursued happiness. But you have joy because you followed after the purposes that God had for you. You are using your life as God intended you to, and now you can't help but rejoice even in the midst of problems. Because you're doing what you were meant to do all along. Go to Christianity because it's true. Now listen to this. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. So Peter is writing to a church. And this church has been suffering 
for doing the right thing, for being faithful, and because of it, they're suffering. And here's what he tells them. It's the six verses. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, just like Joseph. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, did you listen to that one line? It's a gracious thing that you suffer and you have been called to it. Like, no one's coming to Christianity because they heard it said that they're going to suffer. But if you come to it because it's true, you're going to find meaning and purpose in a way to get through the suffering because you have him and he's always enough. I mean, do you understand what this is saying also? saying that when you suffer, you can better understand Christ and what he went through on the cross, what he must do in order to get you. So there's this verse that talks about how it was a joy for Christ to go to the cross. Now that's crazy. He didn't like the suffering. He enjoyed, well, he took joy in the cross because it was going to give him you. He was chasing you. He chased you down, and it led him to run right up upon that tree. And then on that tree, he suffers, and he dies for you, and he rises so that he could have you with him for all of eternity in Eden. You were always his delight. You were always his joy. You were always his treasure, and it led him right to the cross. But he had to get you. And on that cross, though he had all the power in the cosmos, he laid his power down. He gave it all away. And that was the most powerful and loving thing he could do in that moment because it was what gave him you. And that is the display of perfect love. And that's what we're after. That's why we long for Eden. And so go to him and you will find yourself in Eden. Go to him and you will find your feet in a sand of paradise because you have him. Because if you chase Eden without the king, you'll never get Eden. But if you chase after the king, you will find yourself stumbling into Eden. So go to him. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would help us to delight in you so that then the deepest desires of our soul will be satisfied, so then we might have a purpose, and that purpose might give us joy. God, I pray that you would equip us as people to flee from temptation, that we would see it for what it is, lies 
that are promising that if we take those temptations, we will get eaten. God, help us to not fall for the lies anymore. Help us to not fall for the trickery and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the truth. The one who, as we are swept up by you into the story of you rescuing us, that we find ourselves in the place we've always longed to be, our home, Eden. God, take us